0: Wisdom traditions and spiritual traditions existed in sports. Like, part of being a fan is being part of something greater than yourself. Buying into something because you have faith, because it's completely irrational, but you have no control over it, but yet you're part of it.
1: Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. And welcome to our fall season. Guys, I have some pretty epic guests this fall and some new projects coming up, which I'm really pumped about. I'm also super hungry because I decided to do this five-day fasting thing through Prolon. I don't know if you've heard of Prolon. They are not a sponsor, but uh, um, you guys should be. This is my third time trying this. Prolong is a fasting kit, a cleanse, if you will. And I am on day three out of five. God, you know what? I am hungry as all hell, but I feel so damn amazing. Newsflash, guys. If you're nice to your gut, it's nice to you. Shocking, I know. But anyways, back to our fall season. I could not think of a better way to start this fall season than talking to Mr. Gotham Chopra. Gotham Chopra is an American sports documentarian, media entrepreneur, producer, podcast host, director, journalist, and author. Yes, he's all of those things and he's had an epic life so far. He is the co-founder of Religion of Sports, Liquid Comics, Chopra Media and the Chopra Well. He is known for his sports centric films, having worked with athletes such as, you know, Tom Brady, LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, Simone Biles, and he talks about his latest project with Serena Williams. No big deal. We mainly focus on his current role as co-founder of Religion of Sports, a sports-focused media company that was founded in 2016 by Chopra, Michael Strahan and Tom Brady. Look, I don't care if you're a fan or not of Tom Brady, but please, please go check out Tom versus Time. I just watched the whole thing and God, this story will resonate with everyone. I don't care who you are. Chopra, like I said, has had quite a life. I'm hoping he writes a book about all his insane and fantastic adventures. It was such a blast talking to him. And I hope you enjoy my interview with Gotham Chopra. You're going to indulge me for a second because I know you've done a lot of interviews. You're probably maybe sick about talking about everything you guys have done so far. I just finished watching Tom vs. Time. Definitely had tears in my eyes during the emotional game episode. Yeah. 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 I was like, I can't handle this. So <laughs> I know growing up, you're a huge sports fan. You grew up in Boston and, of course, a born storyteller. So, religion of sports, co founding this organization obviously makes sense. And then recently, I was just watching all your interviews on how this all started for you. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, you met Kobe Bryant you guys worked on Muse, the documentary. And then I think from there, things started rolling along. You met Tom Brady, and then Religion of Sports was born, 2016. Very short version, but something along the lines of that.
0: Yeah, those are a lot of the component parts. I mean, yes, it starts with going way back to the very beginning, you know, being the son of immigrants, you know, first generation American, first person in my family ever born outside of of India, of South Asia. For me, growing up in a place like Boston, where I went to predominantly Irish Catholic school, probably one of two South Asian brown kids in my class. I didn't have anything in common with any of the kids that I went to school with, except for the Boston Red Sox, the Boston Celtics, the Bruins, and the New England Patriots. And that was something that we shared in common. And I was a diehard fan One of the stories I tell is like when I was 11 years old, I went to a Celtics-Bulls game in 1986, where Michael Jordan had 63 points and a double overtime loss to the Celtics in a playoff game. And afterwards, Larry Bird was quoted as saying, that wasn't a basketball player. That was God on the court disguised as a basketball player. And for me, like, I witnessed that. I was a witness to that. And it was everything that he said it was. And so when I track back religion of sports, in some ways, like, that was, like, the seminal moment because it was watching something mythic and and spiritual on a basketball court. The Boston Garden itself was, like, this fabled place. And Fenway Park down the street at that time was a very cursed cathedral, but cursed uh, nevertheless. And so I grew up around that. And then my father, Deepak Chopra, like when he started, probably around that same age when I was a teenager, to have this sort of personal and then professional transformation, I started to realize a lot of the things that he spoke about in terms of wisdom traditions and spiritual traditions existed in sports. Like part of being a fan is being part of something greater than yourself, buying into something. Because you have faith because it's completely irrational but you have no control over it but yet you're part of it I mean these were all the things in my childhood that were sort of like swimming around and yeah then I sort of went to college and storytelling and became a journalist for many years and I would say that was the one other thing is as I traveled around the world really covering mostly conflicts I was in places like the Northwest Frontier part of Pakistan and Afghanistan and Kashmir and Chechnya and Iran and Iraq and Jerusalem and all these places was like endless sort of conflict. And yet the one thing that was in the early 2000s, late 90s that you could talk about was David Beckham, Michael Jordan, and music. I would say that was the other thing. Those were the things that were the universal language. It didn't matter if your ancestors hated each other and you were stuck in these endless wars. You could sit around and talk about Talker or basketball or or music and so I think that was like all the sort of component parts of what religion was sports. Yeah, practically speaking, 2013 when I met with Kobe. By the way, I grew up rooting against and hating, and I would tell him all the time because that's when he ruptured his Achilles. And I used to tell him, I'm like, man, do you know how many times I've rooted for this to happen to you, Kobe? And he loved that. And, you know, he of course not only was a Laker great, but was a Laker fan growing up and I was a Celtics fan. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. And that's probably when I started to realize like, oh, you can be a storyteller and a sports lover and these things can live together. Before I was like, I'm a sports fan. And then I'm a journalist or I'm a, a filmmaker. And it was around that time, not only meeting Kobe, but like the rise of 30 for 30s and stuff like that, that I was like, oh, these can actually go together. And that's when it really started. And Tom was a big catalyst to that as well. But anyway, I could go on and on. But like, you know, those are sort of like the sort of building blocks for how religion of sports came to be.
1: It's like it all kind of came together. I mean, I've, I've been reading about your journey. You've had quite an interesting one for sure. I was going to ask you in our fast round, what is... The most memorable sports game you've been to, so you answer that, and then the other thing I was gonna mention because I'm music is my kind of religion, and so I equate music to sports. The two things that you can discuss and argue about with anyone in the world without it getting violent, <laughs> or maybe a little violent, but you know, in in a good way. <laughs> so again, indulge me for a second because I'm gonna just—you guys have done so much amazing stuff in seven years. I go to Amitin and Benaka's house quite a bit, and I did see an Emmy award sitting there. And my kids wanted to, I was like, don't touch it. <laughs> like, look at it from afar. It's 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 quite amazing to see it. So just give me 60 seconds. I'm going to brag about you so you don't have to do it yourself. Uh, and, and then we'll move on, I swear. I won't embarrass you too much. Why We Fight, eight-part docuseries about opioid addiction, won a sports Emmy nomination in 2018, Tom vs. Time, which I just finished, won a Sports Emmy for Outstanding Serialized Sports Documentary in 2019, Shut Up and Dribble, directed by you and produced by LeBron, nominated for Outstanding Open Tees, and Outstanding Sports Promotional Announcement at the Sports Emmys, and then Man in the Arena, Tom Brady, was nominated for two Sports Emmys. I mean, this is amazing. Are you—do you ever, like, sit back for a second and— soak it in? Or is it just go, go, go?
0: Not really. I mean, to be honest, and like I, if you had asked me to list all that, I would not have, I do know man in the arena one in sports Emmy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, sort of cliched, but most of the athletes who I work with always talk about like, well, what's the, you know, your favorite pro bowl or your favorite NBA championship or your favorite, you know, we're working with Serena right now went to 34 grand slams. And she's like, well, I don't know. It's like, it's the next one. It's the one that I'm training for now. I'm thinking about, or it's the one that got away, you know, and someone else I worked with who's actually not in the world of sports, but sort of like a big architect. And he was, all, he was like, it's the doing, not the having. I like the doing, you know, and for me, the trophies and the the Emmys or whatever, they're great affirmation. And they're more just like the affirmation of the team that you built around you and just incredible work because As the director, as the founder, you get a lot of like the credit. The role of a director is like choosing a cinematographer and an editor and a producer and a writer and like these people who are so specialized in what they do and amazing. And then you oversee and do all of that and you get to go up and win the award and stuff. But it's it's the team. And I you know, if you ask me right now, like, what do I think about? It's not Tom versus Time or Man in the Arena. No disrespect to Tom, who I love. And is like a brother to me. But it's about Serena, the thing like we're in the middle of, or the next project and the next project. And that's, I think, the thing that inspires and uh, and by the way, it's all really hard. <laughs> like it, none of it goes according to plan. So you kind of have to have that, I think, like that enthusiasm and that energy because otherwise it would be overwhelming and it'd be easy to be like, "Yeah, I'm not doing this today."
1: Whatever I've learned about you in the past few days, I'm assuming... You have gone through many failures before getting to these wins, and I'm sure you'll go through many more. And I think that's the only way to actually learn what works and what doesn't. And I like, you know, that you said, of course, you embrace the wins, but it's about the next thing. Because I, when I was watching Tom versus Time and it, all these great athletes, I think they all think the same way, right? It's, it's great, but it's about the next, it's the next game. It's the next, how can I level up, right? You're talking like an athlete
0: we have a series that we produce called greatness code and it's the premise it's on apple tv plus but the premise is like the greatest athletes on the planet tell the stories of their most memorable performances which you know are obviously usually amazing and that they involve winning championships but the thing that i noticed consistently talking to every single athlete is they always start with, yeah, well, before I tell you the story about like that amazing performance, you know, in Game 5, the Eastern Conference Finals or the Super Bowl or Grand Slam. Let me tell you about the time I fell on my face, that everything went wrong. I completely failed. And that's what greatness comes from is like, but I didn't give up. I took a step away. I looked back and I figured out like, oh, got it. That's what I did wrong. Let me retool. Let me sort of, and I see this like. You know, Steph Curry, the greatest shooter in the history of the sport, is always trying to figure out like how can I get a little bit better? Like what's the little thing I can do, tweak my throw my um, shooting motion or my balance or my legs or whatever. And it's just like it's just like this relentless appetite to do it again, do it again, do it again, get it better. And I think that inspires me and you know, it's something I try to emulate. So right, you know, with kids, that's the thing you try to tell them. It's like, yeah you're going to fail over and over again.
1: And I think that those stories of failure, if you want to call it that, I think we want to hear those stories. Like, of course, it's great to hear about the wins and those epic moments. But I think people really want to hear how, why did you fail? How did you deal with it? And I, I had an interview two weeks ago with Sunil Gupta. He's a book out called Everyday Dharma. And I'm sure you know what Dharma is. And so we were talking about, he was called the face of failure by the New York Times. We were talking about that and then what finding your dharma means, your essence or calling, you know, whatever the definition is for you. So, you know, throughout your career, you know, I've read everything about it. Kind of a cheesy podcast question, but do you think you found your dharma in religion of sports?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I definitely do. But again, it's an ongoing thing. I, I seek affirmation every day. I'm definitely not a, contrary to Amit, our mutual friend. I'm not a person who thinks in five years out or ten years out. Well, it's funny we've you know had to like put together business plans and you know you always have to like project three years, five years, ten years. Like, and I'm like, oh, interesting. because like, <laughs> I don't think about. I mean, have I found my? Down- I think so because I find myself very fulfilled. But I, I I'm not a person who really thinks that big picture, which is ironic considering my family or existentially, yeah, I'm, I'm having fun today. I'm working on this stuff. If I wasn't, I wouldn't be doing it. I think that sort of means I'm living my dharma, but I don't know. We'll see a month from now, a year from now, five years from now, I will get off of this train if I'm not enjoying it. It's too much hard work to keep at it if it's not fulfilling in a real way.
1: Well, I think also your drama your calling, whatever it is, it's going to be ever evolving. And if it isn't, you're, I don't know if you're really learning at the end of the day. So, And obviously you've worked with the best of the best in the sports world. Not very many people have been in your position. So what is it with these athletes who seem beyond human? What is it about them that's different? Like, what is, Of course it's talent, but like, even if you have all the talent in the world, does it matter?
0: No, I mean, look, at that level, when you're a professional athlete, uh, you're competing Grand Slam tournaments or Super Bowls or NBA Finals or whatever, or just, they're all talented. They are all like the top 1% of 1%. They all are bigger, stronger, faster. What separates my observation anyway of greatness, like the truly elite, the mythic, the Tom Brady's, the Serena Williams, the Simone Biles, et cetera, is their relentless will. It's actually that ability to resilience. It's that ability to pick themselves back up and retool and never give up. One of the things, you know, we started this new project with Serena and I asked her, you know, early on as we were starting, I said, like, you know, 34 grand slams, 20, 23 victories. Like, what would you say is the quality, the superpower that really defined all of that across 20 years, right? And she said, it's my will. It's just doing the work, showing up and doing the work. She said, I can't tell you how many times I woke up and I didn't want to go hit and practice. So I also can't tell you how many times I didn't. I just, I did the work. The secret is doing the work. Tom Brady will tell you it's not the seven Super Bowls I won. It's the three that I lost that kind of are the biggest lessons. He's another Steph Curry. There's people bigger, stronger, faster than me, but nobody will outwork me. Nobody will outwork me.
1: Right. No, it makes sense. It's the grit at the end of the day, because you can have all the talent in the world, but got to get up and do those do those hits. And obviously, you know, my the podcast that I'm doing right now is focusing on South Asian trailblazers and, and kind of the South Asian community. So I know you've worked, you've done a doc about Sachin Dendulkar for ESPN. Two-part question on this. Any other South Asian athletes or projects in India that you can talk about that are coming up? And then, you know, I've I've interviewed Satnam Singh, uh, interviewed a few South Asian entrepreneurs that are trying to highlight sports in our community, especially in the U.S. We've talked about why South Asians typically, it's changing, it's changing, but typically why sports has never been held in high regard, especially in the motherland. I wanted to get your thoughts on it in in the projects, if you have any.
0: Yeah, so the project, actually, we're starting, like I would say, even in more Uber project, which is starting like a whole mission in India to almost replicate some of what we've done here, which is, I like to think of sports as the world in which we tell, but we're a storytelling company. Sports is great because it's physical and it's mythic and there's winning and losing. It's a great. There's a lot of great story elements you can build around, but ultimately these stories. I mean, my favorite compliment is when people come to us and say, I'm not really a sports fan or I don't really know anything about football. I don't like football. It's too violent or whatever. But I watched this thing and I actually realized like, this is great. And I was inspired by it and I made my kids watch or whatever. So I think that's the goal. So there's definitely some athletes and characters in India that we're excited about and we're talking to and trying to figure out, you know, I'd say also the collision of Bollywood and sports is a thing that really fascinates me. I mean, Bollywood, uh, just like the storytelling more than the stories. So I'm excited about that. Then I think for your other question, you sort of answered the question. It's like we've, I think, certainly I can speak more to the immigrant experience. It wasn't a thing growing up. Like my parents didn't really like, it was like you have to make this team or that team or they were supportive. And I think eventually they found that I was passionate about it and they supported that. But it was never like a real mission, intention, like this was not a cultural value. Making the basketball team or playing baseball or being the captain of the team. It wasn't. It was like doing well in school, getting good grades, engineering, medicine, stuff like that. You know, like and I see it in other communities. I certainly see it with all the athletes like that I talked to about like when they were growing up, like sports was part of like their not just cultural, but like their family's sort of vernacular. Like was, DNA like, how was more like their DNA. Ju- yeah. yeah. And now they judge success and failure. That's a big differentiator because, again, like people can train and you can work out and you know you can get there physically. But if you're not like sort of mentally, emotionally, spiritually rooted in it, then it, it fades over time. Because, again, sports like we were talking about, it's hard, it's hard, like competing is hard, and most of it, the best players in baseball, fail seven out of 10 times, strike out. And that's like hall of fame level, <laughs> like, you know? So failures, and if you, you know, eventually, if you're not trained to deal with failure or you don't have it inside you, then you give up. And like, that, I think that's why a lot, it just hasn't been a thing, but it's changing. It's changed.
1: We're slow, slowly seeing some of these younger South Asian kids getting into the pros. It's getting there, getting there slowly. Any other projects with Religion of Sports you can talk about right now that maybe are coming up?
0: Well, I'm super excited about this Serena Williams thing. That'll It's the subsequent season to Man in the Arena with Tom Brady. Serena will be the subsequent series that will probably launch next summer. That's a big, huge, exciting one. You know, there's a couple other things that we're doing, like Ibram Kendi, this amazing scholar. We're doing this thing called Skin in the Game with ESPN. Just got announced and it's you know you mentioned shut up and dribble earlier it's like we get we get a lot of attention because we work with you know, serena and conor mcgregor and simone biles and tom brady and all that sort of stuff but actually shut up and dribble is like one of my favorite projects because it's like it was with lebron which is amazing but it was really like lebron's it wasn't about lebron it was his passion and fascination with activism It was something that was really important to him, like this platform. And so the thing, Skin in the Game with Abraham Kendi is like, basically, he's one of the foremost thinkers in this country around race and politics and stuff like that. But it's set in the world of sports. And so I don't know, that's a a project I'm really excited about. We're working with Stephen A. Smith, who's amazing and interesting, doing a whole bunch of baseball stuff with Fox Baseball. I'm a big, huge baseball fan. Are you going to do
1: anything for the Astros? I'm from Houston. (laughs) i mean of course you are because i mean you know hey we both both grew up in i'm actually still scared to wear my astros hats anywhere i'm like oh god yeah
0: (laughs) yeah i'm a red sox fan so which isn't a great time right now but yeah like we're always open for business looking for for great great ideas very well, obvious. if you ever
1: want to do an Astros thing, we got to yeah. me and my brother go back and yeah. forth on a bunch of articles about about it all. But we, we won't get into the argument right now. My husband's a Dodger grew up in LA, so he just caught his, his first Dodgers ball last month after 43 years of, of being a fan, so lots of crying. Okay, we're going to talk about growing up Gotham a little bit. So obviously your father is Deepak Chopra and you have a sister. Is it Malaika, Malika? Malik- Malika Malika? Malika. Malika. And you guys both grew up in Boston. By the way, really quick, rewinding back to the beginning of our interview, one day if we ever meet, I have the best Michael Jordan story you've ever heard in your life. Meaning, you know, not not work-wise, but I did party with him one night. We'll have to talk about that someday. And it was in in Chicago, and it was all just, it was one of those nights that it just all happened. Yeah. Yeah. He gave me a high five. But anyways, we'll have to talk about it later. Okay. So you grew up in Boston. What was your sport growing up? What did you play?
0: Basketball. And I still play basketball. Pick up once a week. I love basketball. I mean, I did play baseball. I somehow played football when I was, you know, in high school. (laughs) Somehow.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: But I would say basketball is the thing I was and still Still am probably most passionate about. Yeah.
1: So, and then of course, you know, you've had a unique life starting in childhood because of your, of your dad's journey this part, you tell me, because this is a Wikipedia fact I found, and I have no idea if you want to talk about it. So just say, hey, Tucker, move on. Did you go on a tour as a roadie with Michael Jackson? Is that true? Yeah. Holy yes, when I was, Jesus yeah. Jones.
0: Okay. I mean, yeah, no, what? I, I <laughs> met Michael when I was very, you know, my father, you know, as his fame started to grow and interesting people from Elizabeth Taylor to Marlon Brando, both of whom were mentors to Michael Jackson, became. Followers, so to speak. And they introduced Michael. And I must have been 13, 14 years old at the time when Michael first started becoming like a sort of friend of the family. And so I became friends with him. I mean, and then when I was 17 or 18, I think I was still in high school, I went on tour with him. Basically, it was the dangerous tour. I think it was like 1992 at the time. It was like the biggest, I was like Taylor Swift scale. <laughs> it was like. Right. It was the biggest concert, I think, ever at that point. And it was wild. It was like, you know, London and Munich and Frankfurt and Rome and just these incredible sold out stadiums. And I was quite close. You know, Michael, look, he's one of the most iconic, talented, gifted, controversial, tormented, tortured souls. And I think I was so young that I'm not sure that I really knew or could sort of see all those different dimensions, looking back now, I'm like, oh,
1: right. Interesting. huh? Connecting the dots a little bit. Yeah. 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 But you you had a totally different point of view at that point as a 17 year old. Yeah.
0: I look back now and, you know, I realize like Michael, you read in the history books about artists like Michelangelo or Vincent van Gogh or these incredibly gifted, just not even human, like sort of artists, but deeply, deeply tortured and dark. There's darkness there. Those are intertwined. Like you take one away, like you It feels like it has to be a up.
1: requirement or something.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and that's what Michael was. I mean, he was he was gifted, but he was also there's a lot of darkness there, and so sad the way it ended, and certainly like how kind of tangled up and twisted the legacy is. But
1: you had you had your own experience. Please tell me that you were able to dance on stage with like, somehow.
0: So what happened was like I was a friend of Michael and I got invited by him to go on this tour. And my parents somehow magically, I was 17 years old, let me do that. And then, by the way, like what would happen is like you'd go and there'd be like these sold out things at Wembley. And we'd be like, holy shit, amazing. Then I would go back to the hotel with Michael and he would sit like at the top of the Dorchester Hotel. There'd be like thousands of fans outside chanting his name. And Michael would sit up there. I would be there with him and he would like drink orange juice and watch my fair lady. And I was like, this sucks. Like, I'm so not into this. And so then yeah, I was 17 years old. And so I said, I think I'm going to leave or unless, and Michael offered me, he's like, well, what if we gave you a job? And so they gave me it. They gave me a job. And like, so suddenly I was like working on the tour for the next seven or eight weeks. And then things turned because I mean, it was still, I hung out with Michael, but really I started to like hang out with the backup dancers and the band members and go out to the clubs and we would get like tour jackets and every concert you would get like five, ten tickets to give away. I mean, it was like different. I was going to say you you're know?
1: 17. It's, you're probably like, where yeah. are the chicks? Like what's happening? <laughs> like, where, where, yeah, where are they the were there. Oh, they I'm sure. There. I'm so, sure. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, the closest I've ever been to trying to get on anyone's tour was MIA. <laughs> I was obsessed with her. And I think I followed her for like five cities. I talked to her manager. I mean, it was, I was in law school then. I was like, oh, I'll drop out, whatever. It's fine. Yeah. I didn't quite make it, but I attempted. I attempted. It's always been a dream to be a roadie. I guess I'll do it in my forties. I only have, the kids, the kids can deal with themselves. It's fine. And so then of course, you know, read about your father. I know he discovered TM, Transcendental Meditation, around five when you were five and, and changed his whole lifestyle. Your whole family practiced it. I'm just wondering do you continue to practice this with the family, your family, right now? And then if you do, it obviously changed your father's life. Has it changed yours and, and in what way?
0: Yeah, I still like I would call myself a meditator still. I'm probably not as consistent in my practice as I should be, you know, like most people are, but I I would say it didn't change my life in the because I've been doing it my whole life. Like, you know, my dad came to it probably when he was in his 30s at that point and he had a crazy lifestyle. He drank a lot, he smoked a lot, he worked a lot. He was and so it was a over time, but it was a radical shift for him. I think for me, there's been less of that because it's just something that's, I mean, it hasn't always been there. And like I said, it's ebbed and flowed in terms of consistent practice and stuff, but I think it's always been there. So for me, it's like, wake up and go for a run. Like I certainly remember growing up, like it was considered pretty like fringe. Hmm, What is that? Like, is it religious? Is it this and that? And now it's like meditation. I mean, they don't even call it meditation. It's mindfulness. And it's like, you know, everybody has it on their app and everybody does it. But yeah, for me, it's just part of my daily practice. And, you know, my family, I'd say my wife is actually even more consistent than I am. My son is like a 15-year-old. Like, no. <laughs> like, Probably you know? not right now. Yeah. But, you know, I think that's what we've learned. There, there are times in your life when it's it becomes more of a priority.
1: So you went to Columbia, English literature degree, and then you wrote your first book. So have you thought about writing again or have you written again?
0: Yeah, I've I've written a few books and then I have a new book coming out actually later this year that's more about this and the origin stories around religion, sports and all the things I've I've learned from working with all these amazing athletes, etc. But yeah, I like writing for me is just it's, it's journaling, it's reflecting. And if you don't take the time to do it, then you don't do it. It's an interesting, like everything around us in the media industry, the publishing industry is like turning upside down and stuff like that. So it'll be interesting when it comes out. But yeah, I I love writing. I mean, I love storytelling. This is a a medium and short form video, long form video, writing, podcasting, blogging, you know, et cetera. yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I realized three years of doing this. I'm like, I love telling stories and yeah, just communicating. And I, yeah. I, I didn't even realize it. I found my dharma finally, well, I think. For now, yeah. for now. Let's see what happens. Yeah. I've, yes. al- I've, I've yeah. had eight different careers myself. So growing up in your household, very curious, uh, not just because of who your father is, but I'm always curious with South Asian kids, how they grew up. I grew up strict Hindu household, couldn't date. They were like, don't date, don't date, don't date, but get married kind of thing. I know your dad was obviously busy and traveling and stuff. Was it like that in your household? And then obviously you guys are a spiritual family. Are you religious? What's your relationship to India and religion right now?
0: So growing up, I wouldn't say we was very strict, to be honest. I mean, it was strict in the sense of like school and focus and getting good grades and stuff like that. But outside of that, it wasn't really, I mean, I did go, my parents were very smart. They put me in like an all boys prep schools. There's like, just like not a lot of, <laughs> and it was a very sort of rigorous school in that sense of like academically, athletically and stuff. So there just like wasn't time from, I think I started in that school when I was in seventh grade. That's like my entire adolescence, essentially, I was just like so focused because yeah, I had to be, I mean, in order just to survive that school. But, you know, I'd say we grew up very sort of culturally Indian. So we had a great South Asian community, so we did things like Diwali and Holi, and we were, again, we were children of immigrants, and my parents' generation, a lot of the people that we grew up with all came together at the same time. Most of them were physicians, you know, in the Boston area. Shocking, so shocking. We grew up around, yeah, yeah. So we grew up around that. I had a lot of cousins also that I feel to the same, like, really close to that I grew up yeah. with, and we you know, hang out with each other all the time like every other South Asian family I have like tons of aunts and uncles who aren't really my like when I tell that, my yeah. they're like wow like how many siblings do your parents have I'm like not many they're just like but you know like everyone's an aunt um uncle so yeah in that way I I sort of grew up and then but I also traveled to India like my parents my grandparents growing up fortunately were all alive and they lived in India and De- Delhi like 5 minutes away from each other so we'd go spend our summers there And I always like felt a real close connection, even though I thought of myself more as American, but connection to India. And I still do. And I still have tons of cousins. And I go back at least once a year, if not more.
1: Can you jam in Hindi?
0: God, my Hindi is so bad. <laughs> I can get why in the sense of like I can, I yeah. know like when I'm being talked about and stuff right, like that. Right, right. You like, can talk to a rickshaw right? driver. You can yeah. you can hang. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We, yeah. I lived in India for three years uh, for my husband's job after we got married and I was killing it for a while in the Hindi. I'm Guju. Yeah.
0: Okay. And so,
1: but yeah, now I'm like, man, I sound like not Indian at all. Yeah. It's, it's just, it just like yeah. goes away. It's just like
0: embarrassing at this point. I know. Like, I don't like God. He, my most kids of the people, know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and most of the people I interact with, family, or work with, they all speak English. Yeah. Like, they're just like, no, 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 we'll speak English. I know, they like, yeah, just <laughs> stop good.
1: talking, it's fine. Don't embarrass so, yourself. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna, yeah. I think I'm going to do a whole podcast episode yeah. on Gujarati, because it's such a, like, I love, it's such a funny language, you know, I can make fun of it, because I am Guju, and so just, I want to have a Guju off, I think, with a bunch of Gujarati, Indian Gujarati kids, Indian American. And i I'd remiss to ask this, and of course, up to you on, on how much you want to talk about it, but... I'm learning as I get older, I think most of us are, uh, and understanding a little bit more about my relationship with my parents, embracing it more, or understanding kind of like, oh, maybe it wasn't as black and white as I thought. And so just curious about relationship with your parents, obviously your dad in particular because of of who he is, because his life journey must have defined yours to an extent, right? Yeah. So, and and you did a doc on him, decoding Deepak, obviously, so... I guess one question is, how has your relationship with your dad changed over time? And that's, I know, very loaded. (laughs) And then was that doc, was that a therapy session for you? Well,
0: I'd say right now, my my relationship with my father in particular is probably better and closer than it's ever been. Like I talked to him and that's kind of in my family. We're kind of a small family because I have one sister and then she's got two kids and I've only got one son. So we're, like, on one family text thread, my my parents, then my sibling, her husband, kids, et cetera. And, like, so we interact, like, too much. Right? Oh, so that's of, nice. You know, it's like... That's how yeah, we are. I mean, it's it awesome. Nice. We're small too. Yeah. Like yeah. And then with my dad, like, yeah, I, you know, it's just, I think I have, like, sort of gained a sort of... He wasn't very present, which I've talked about openly, like, when when I was young and he knows. I mean, he... And I think maybe while there was some... You know, there was resentment when I was younger now I have a appreciation like everything that I am is because of him and not because of his fame and all that but it's because he was the archetypal immigrant who came to this country with no money and as well and like worked his ass off so that his kids and now my kids etc could have all of this and so I think that's probably something I did not really recognize or care too much about when i was way younger but i do now you know for sure and and he's still hustling and working and doing all of that and so i think that is something i've observed and i think i just like um you know it's funny like when i had my son and my dad is like giving me like parenting advice i'm like
1: <laughs> no, like, I'm you're like, like, you're kidding. I will ask mom. Just because he wrote eighteen thousand books and the world listens to you, just not kidding. <laughs> no, of course he's your dad. At the end of the day, that's the first role, right? So, yeah, that, that's awesome. But, but yeah,
0: now we're super close and and have a really strong relationship and talk to him at least once, if not more, in a day. And I think he's in an interesting place, both in his personal and professional journey. And he really just wants to have impact and reach people. And I think because of who he is. There's a lot of business opportunities, and people are always coming to him with ideas, and he just sends that all to me. And now I send it to Amit. And I'm just <laughs> like he doesn't care for that anymore. Right. He's like, right. I actually think of my dad as an artist. He's an artist, and he just wants to express himself and not be cluttered up by a strategy or a business right. plan or anything. I like that. I think he's done so. with
1: that now. It's, it's, yeah, it's time for that. He's an artist that just wants to share his expression. Right. Which I, th- I feel like he's earned for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure.
1: I, I met him six months ago at Ami's house. Yeah. Just, you know, oh, he came right. in for an event and a few of us went over there for, for some cha Nasto briefly met him. He definitely has this youthfulness to him, you know?
0: Yeah. He's radically, again, shifted his lifestyle in terms of yoga every day, his diet, his sleep, his meditation, of course. He takes it very seriously and you can see physically how much of an impact it's had. Yeah,
1: he's got some great skin. Let him know. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) And you've interviewed the Taliban, Dalai Lama, J.W. Bush. So my question to you is, I still can't even think of the question, but I was thinking I was nervous interviewing you and prepping for three days. How did you prep for these people? I mean, were you nervous and who were you most nervous about? And did anything go sideways here?
0: Nothing's really gone sideways. You know, I guess I'm lucky in the family that I grew up in, I was exposed at a very young age. And I think that's probably why you know, especially now in the stuff I do, like with athletes, it's that I'm not that intimidated. I've just been used to, I've been around this type of, quote, fame, or the Michael Jackson and stuff like that when I was very young. So like, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. And I think it also gives, it has given some level of comfort. I mean, Michael, Kobe, like was, he's like, bro, like, if you could like hang with Michael Jackson when you were a kid, because he was a child star. Kobe was a 17. It sort of pays itself forward in the um that way and so prep like i'm sure like you prep like you do the research it's also i'm i'm a curious person you know by nature which i think you have to be in order to sit in the seat you know and like actually it's like yeah I got the 32 questions but really like one question leads to the next well, of course next always time, always you it's know. just to have my
1: outline for my own peace of mind i i don't think we followed any of it which is what i love about this this medium yeah totally
0: but I think also I mean some of those I was so much younger Dalai Lama, Taliban like so when I was with Taliban guys like it was before September 11th I mean it was like a different world and it was like a a world in which like oh they're just kind of like you yeah, know, extreme yeah. or what are freedom fighters and stuff like that
1: <laughs> I don't know why I I'm laughing yeah no, like not freedom fighters no. <laughs>
0: Like if my son was going now, I'd be like, "Oh my god, yeah. I don't think I'd be able to sleep at night." But at the time, it just like seemed kind of. It just was pre nine eleven. It on. was
1: totally different, right, right, right. But then you got like, we we I have so many questions on it, but I don't want to keep you for like two hours. But I was reading about how you got arrested because you had bullet shells that were a gift from the Taliban, and yeah. I was like, "Of course he did. Of course." <laughs>
0: I was in the Khyber Pass, like the Northwest Frontier part of Pakistan, three weeks before 9-11 and was up there working on a story. And these guys that we used to ride with, you used to hire the Mujahideen, the freedom fighters or whatever, like, and you used to hire them. Like, i pay like cigarettes and a couple hundred bucks. Then you would ride around in the back of their trucks and they would escort you because you kind of needed their quote protection up in that part of the world. And and they were like my age or younger probably at the time. And you would talk about soccer with them and stuff like that. At the end one of the guys gave me like a gift, like a like a shell, like or cartridge full right. of bullets. And I was like, oh man, thanks. <laughs> like and like threw it in my bag and was like
1: You know like wearing it didn't like a think belt. I it. <laughs> like, yeah. whatever. It's fine. <laughs> I,
0: so I didn't think about it. I just kind of shoved it in my bag until they found it oh in my, my bag. God. And then speaking of like poor Hindi, like I couldn't really explain myself. <laughs> yeah. And like they're just like, You're okay. like, kush, kush like I don't know. Yeah. <laughs>
1: just just name yeah. like all the Bollywood titles while you're while you're waiting there. Yeah, I just love I love that story and I love how Colin Powell had to like get you out. Yeah. Because why not?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, <laughs> good Good times, good times. Places, I
1: guess. Yeah. Good, good old Wikipedia. Anyways, I just thought that was such. a, I was like, oh my god, you have so many stories. We need to next time you're here. I gotta, we gotta have some cha. Really quickly, I know you also co-founded Chopra Media YouTube channel, the Chopra Well. Is that still going on? All, all of those things? Still
0: there. I mean, it's okay. my dad is like, he's super active and he posts stuff all the time. And I think I serve that role with my dad. It's not like even official as much as I'm his son and he's, he is a prolific content creator. So it's trying to help him organize and think and, and make impact, so yeah.
1: Okay, very cool. Quick fast round, first thing you think of. And this first question you may not, I'm not sure what I meant by it. So just, but I just wanted to know what you what you thought I meant. <laughs> What do you consider the purest sport?
0: Probably fighting, like UFC. UFC or racing. Like, there are two things that I've always thought, like, if you're the fastest, so I, I had the incredible fortune of working with Usain Bolt for a day, or for a while, it's like if you're the fastest, quote, man on the planet, or you're the heavyweight champion of the world, those are two things that you're like, you're just the baddest. You're the best. You can't question it. And so probably running or fighting.
1: If you can play three-on-three basketball, who would be on your team and who would be on the opposing team? Anyone.
0: Kobe. I would definitely have Kobe on my team and probably Steph. I mean, Kobe, just the greatest competitor that I've ever been around. I mean, I've never really worked with Michael Jordan, but like I would imagine Kobe, I mean, it's hard to imagine anybody more competitive than him. And then Steph is the greatest shooter the history of the game. He also plays with joy. He's so much fun to be around. He's a great teammate. Everybody I've ever talked to, you know, around him loves playing with him. So those would be my two guys. Who would I play against? I mean, I, I mean, just to have be on the same court, I guess. LeBron is just being around that sort of greatness. And also, I think the thing I most admire about LeBron is just not what he's accomplished on the court, but really off the court also. Shaq is, you know, I, I hated on Shaq for many years as a Celtics fan, but like, he's such a great guy. He's so much fun. He was probably one of the greatest big men of his generation. I'm a huge Celtics fan. So like, I'll go with Jason Tatum. Just okay. like, cause, or Bird. You know. Yeah, Larry. Yeah. Legend. It's legend.
1: I thought you were going to say Bird because. Yeah. That, that, that well, is. Well, I'm like,
0: I have high hopes for this year. So Jason Tatum, anything I can do to like, you okay. know, fuel his fire. I
1: <laughs> yeah. Lo- Love it. What is your biggest pet peeve?
0: Yesterday I was reading a treatment, you know, we get a lot of these things and people always say, you know, this story's never been told until now. And I was like, I mean, this is like literally you just said, I was like, I sent it to someone and I'm like, yeah, we're not doing this. Like, you know, I think my biggest pet peeve is like laziness. Laziness, you know? like, yes. Yeah.
1: Okay. This is good to know for people that want to pitch to you guys. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like yeah. It's a good tidbit. How do you want to be remembered by the people around you?
0: Loyal kind supportive and i think like what i was saying earlier about the emmys and stuff like that i am incredibly proud of those because it's it's the work of all the people around me and i'm like super proud of them and i think that's my role Tier, finding as founder as a director is like providing other people opportunities and support but also just treating people well you know, and I think well, that's, that, that's what makes really it a good leader.
1: You should give yourself a little more credit. Cause you're, I know at the beginning of the conversation, we were talking about you being a director and it's really about the team, but if you don't build the right team, it doesn't work. So that's a, it's, it's you have to surround, sure. surround yourself with people smarter than you. Right. Yeah.
0: I was with Tom Brady over the weekend. He went back to new England. It was like the big sort of comeback and celebration. And, you know, I ended up in the waiting with him for a couple hours because I was leaving the game with him and we had to wait. And, Towards the end of the night, like way past all the time when like the media and all this stuff, all the janitors, the custodians, the the help in that stadium were coming to him and saying, Tom, we're so happy to see you. We love that you're back. And Tom knew all of their names. He knew he was asking about their kids. He was taking pictures. And I mean, this is the GOAT. Like he is the GOAT. This is the real deal. This guy is the real deal. And like what he means to people. And he was there for 20 years and I just, I thought it was like, I was like, okay, that's actually the quality I want to emulate Yeah, more than anything. Just being a good human, him.
1: right? Like, yeah. Just yeah, being a good really human. Yeah, it really impressive. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And it's not surprising. Ultimate collaboration this year or, you know, soon that you haven't, someone you haven't worked with yet.
0: So hard to like, you know, because like I said, I'm so... Really, in the moment, I am loving, loving, loving working with Serena Williams. I mean, she's just awesome, and she's obviously the GOAT. But I think I've been fortunate to get her in a moment in time when she's, you know, recently she won't even use the word retired. She says transition. You know, um, (laughs) I love that. But so you're still close enough. Like it's all really fresh. But she's also not in it. You know, I'm enjoying that. I I mean, as for what's next, it's it's sort of hard. I had. 10 minutes with Novak Djokovic the other night, like after the U S open where somebody introduced me and I was like, Oh man, this, and we talked about, you know, working together, maybe someday. And he's, he's just another, you know, his homage to Kobe after the U S open was re- That's what we talked about. It was very real, you know, and like, I think there was like a connection there. So the best way to prepare for the future is stay in the present. Yeah, so yeah. I love it. You know, I'm going to
1: have to write that one yeah. down. That, that might be the yeah. title of the podcast. <laughs> maybe Coco
0: yeah oh yeah
1: okay last question i swear i'll let you go besides family and friends if it all goes awry everything goes to shit what are your bare bones for happiness
0: i think that happiness for me is presence you know it's just being in the moment not i mean by the way like i struggle with this all the time it's like why am i no more successful why am i like this what's gonna happen you know or like why did i do that like living in the past or living in the future One of the things Tom has sort of really, I've observed in him, just in terms of his success over 20 years, he talks a lot about inputs and outputs, which is who do you surround yourself with? And some people take, take, take a lot. Not like, it's just like, it's an energy you can feel when you're around them and other people sort of give you a lot. And I think that is something to me, like, who am I surrounding myself with? Do we have a shared mission? You know, how can we be of service? You know, I'm ambitious and all of that sort of stuff. But I want to like also, I want all of our work and all of my time to be meaningful.
1: Right. You know, be at peace. I was talking to someone about the arrival fallacy, the, the idea that when you arrive at some goal, that's it. You're happy. You've made it. And as you know, as we all get older, we know that's not true. So. That is it, I swear. Next time, if we ever do meet or we talk, I will share my epic, epic Michael Jordan story with Uh, you. I would love that, I still think it's one of the best ones for someone that doesn't work with them. Tuckered Out is hosted by me, Ami Tucker. This episode is produced by Jeannie Media with Jeannie Saraswathy, Ashley Tuff, Micah Sweetman, Hans Andres, and Laura Radescu. You can follow me at Tuckered Out Podcast on Instagram, and please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcast.